Well, good morning, church. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. And we are coming to the end of this series, which I was telling Amanda, I've actually, I've really enjoyed the series, both in the study and the delivery. I've, I've received some feedback from you that it's just been a help. It's nice because there's a great breadth to it. So each week we're coming to something, something that really challenges us in a different way. And it, it's been great. And so we're looking today at 1 Corinthians 15, which many commentators would call the resurrection chapter. I met with the B3 group this past week, and uh, one of the questions, they had a test that they wrote. You can ask them all about that. But one of the questions they had to answer was, if you were going to explain the resurrection, where would you turn in your Bible? Uh, List a passage that you would turn to. And one of the answers was 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, I I would say this is the answer I wrote on the test. This is where I would turn if I was going to answer a question about the resurrection. Because the Apostle Paul fleshes this out for us here. And we were in this passage on Resurrection Sunday, if you remember. Because in the, in the flow of this passage, the first half of the chapter, Paul points to the resurrection of Christ. And he explains the historicity of the resurrection of Christ and the necessity of the resurrection of Christ. And he unpacks all of that. So when we were studying the line, on the third day he rose again from the dead, that's where we rooted ourselves. And if you were paying close attention, you might remember that I said that we would be visiting the second half of 1 Corinthians 15 in the weeks to come. Well, here we are today. Because we're considering the line, I believe in the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. At first glance, you might think that this is a redundancy. You, you might think that the, uh, these, the early church who, who wrote this down, that maybe they had forgotten that they already talked about this, right? Easter Sunday, Jesus rose. Remember we talked about that. But in fact, it's not a redundancy at all. It's not a repetition. It's an application. And we see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul begins with the resurrection of Christ, but then he doesn't just assume that his people are going to be able to connect the dots between Christ's resurrection and then our coming resurrection. He doesn't just assume, so he pivots and he turns and he says, understanding this now prepares us to see the resurrection of our bodies that we anticipate. So that's what we're looking to today. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to flesh this out for us. Now, maybe you're thinking, well... Don't, shouldn't everybody just assume that, that our bodies are going to be resurrected? Isn't that just kind of common knowledge? And of course, it, it wasn't common knowledge. It, at the time when this letter was written, it's not common knowledge in much of the Eastern world today. And we're going to discover later in our sermon that it's, it's not going to be common knowledge in our culture in the days to come. The resurrection of the body was a scandalous idea. Now, let's turn our attention. What does it, believe, what does it mean to believe in the resurrection of the body and why does it matter Look with me now at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 35 and we're going to read all the way to the end of verse 58. Hear now God's holy, inspired, living and active and inerrant word to us today. But someone will ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, And another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. Sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, obviously, we've covered a lot of ground in that passage. Essentially, what we have here is Paul giving an introductory description of the nature, the timing, and the implications of the resurrection of our bodies. But before we unpack all of that, I want to begin by asking this question. Why was this doctrine opposed? Why was this doctrine opposed? Because you see, both in 1 Corinthians 15 and in the line that we have in the Creed, it was written to answer a question. To, to settle an opposition. We can find the question, actually, if we look at verses 35 to 36. Paul addresses this question. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Now, note his tone there. You foolish person. If this, if this were just a widow in, in Paul's church who you know, really wanted to know, Pastor, well, Paul, what, what kind of body will I come with? He wouldn't respond the way that he did, right? You foolish person. No, he's responding to to someone who's asking these questions out of antagonism. Someone who doesn't want the answer. They just want to mock this ridiculous idea of the resurrection. And that's why Paul responds so sharply. But that prompts us to ask, why did this idea seem so preposterous? Why was there any opposition at all? Well, strange as it might seem today, This doctrine of the resurrected body was wildly offensive when it was preached. It was wildly offensive to the city of Corinth. Wildly offensive to the ancient Near Eastern world where the early church was was growing. You see, there was an idea prevalent in that culture. 
and an idea that, truth be told, is prevalent in many of the Eastern cultures today in our world. This idea that the physical was somehow evil, bad, gross, but the spiritual was good. This line of thinking, this mindset made its way into the Christian church in the heresy known as Gnosticism. We see that in the church as early as the late first century. And Gnosticism was essentially this idea that we need to escape from the physical. The physical is like this this fleshy, gross cage and that we have to flee from it and to, to be a part of this spiritual reality. Spirit, good, flesh, bad. That was the idea of Gnosticism. That was the mindset that pervaded the culture that Paul was ministering in. Therefore, this idea that we, would be, that we would be resurrected in these bodies that are deemed as gross and bad, the idea that we would be in these bodies forever was wildly offensive to the culture. People pushed back on this. And in, in fact, if you read the creed closely, you can see a pushback against this mindset all over the creed. Think about it. Right at the beginning, it affirms God as the maker of heaven and earth, right? Right in the beginning, we say God made the physical world and he made it good. Read Genesis 1 and 2. He made this, it was good. He made this, it was good. The goodness of creation is found right at the beginning of the creed. On top of that, God himself came into the physical. Jesus Christ dwelt in the womb of his mother, Mary, He was born as we are. He lived as we do. He suffered as we do. He died in the flesh. And then here's this astounding reality. When Jesus died, it's not as if he saw himself as being freed from that physical bondage. Jesus rose again in that physical body. And the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, is going to forever live in a physical body. Isn't that remarkable and astounding? Can you see how that would be wildly offensive to a world that thought that the physical was gross and wrong and evil, something that we needed to escape from? That's the underlying question in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the underlying objection behind this line in the creed that the early church was facing. And we haven't faced that objection recently. I would say for the last hundred years, that hasn't been an objection in our culture, but as we will discuss in the, in later on in this sermon, I think this is going to increasingly be an objection that we face in our culture. Canada it, and the, the people, that the, I think of our whole education system, increasing, we're, increasingly we're seeing this idea that the physical is bad, the physical is not authoritative, that the spiritual is at war sometimes with the physical. We'll unpack that later. But this, this matters. It's important. And Ben Myers notes, from start to finish, the creed affirms the value of the material world. Now, Paul takes that mocking question that they asked. They said, with what kind of body do they come? He takes that mocking question and then he answers it. Because truth be told, you know, when you get past the motives, that's actually a, a helpful question. And I'm glad they asked that question because that's a question I would be asking too. What will the resurrection body be like? Don't you want to know? Thankfully, they asked this question because outside of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, the New Testament actually doesn't say an awful lot about what these resurrection bodies will be like. I mean, we see Jesus and his resurrection body, and that's about the closest that we get to any understanding of what it will be like. And I suspect, though I, I don't know for certain, but I suspect that the scarcity 
And maybe that this shroud of mystery is there because we would become too fixated if we knew what our resurrection bodies would be like. I think C.S. Lewis is maybe close to the mark with this famous quote. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. C.S. Lewis is he's alluding to the fact that we are eternal creatures. And I think we forget that sometimes. The person that you walk past at the grocery store, those kids you're raising, that neighbor next door, eternal creatures. We're going to live either in, eternally in glory or eternally in damnation. And if we could see even a glimpse of that eternality and a glimpse of who we truly are he says we we'd be bowing down to worship each other or we'd be horrified of each other he says I don't know but I think he's actually onto something there that the Bible leaves a little bit of a cloud around this so we don't know for certain but Paul does tell us some true and helpful things and so we can't go too far but let's just discern from the text some true and helpful things what will the resurrection body be like first of all I think we can say it will be similar to our current bodies It'll be similar. I think that's the message that Paul is conveying in the beginning with his imagery of a seed. Where he talks about seeds and he says, you know, that, that there's a seed of a certain kind and it brings forth a certain kind of, of fruit, of livestock. So you imagine if, if you plant an apple seed in the ground, it's going to come up with an apple tree, right? God's a God of order. That's what he does. Apple seeds don't produce skyscrapers. Watermelons don't produce porcupines. God's a God of order. And in the same way, at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, when God made animals, each of its own kind, so it is in the days to come. When you plant my body into the ground, I won't return as a bear or a bumblebee. I'll return as a man. And we see this in Jesus' resurrected body. Now, it's interesting when you read the different gospel accounts and you see these appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, there's always a sense in which they struggle to recognize him at first. And it never explains why. Maybe it was dark. Maybe he had a hood on. We're not sure. But they, they can't quite see him at first. But then in each of those stories, they, they come to realize that this is Jesus. This is the Christ. So, for example, we see this story in, in John's gospel when Jesus invites them to come eat fish with him. And the text says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. They knew the seed that went into the ground resembled that which burst forth from the ground. And all that suggests that our resurrected bodies will be similar to our current bodies. Jesus sat and he ate and they touched him. Right? There's, there's going to be a lot of similarity, a lot of carryover. But at the same time, and we learn in this text, our resurrected bodies will be gloriously different. If you'd never seen a tree before, Imagine that, and I held up this little apple seed. Your mind would, would never begin to imagine what that seed would become, right? Even though it's of the same kind, an apple seed becoming an apple tree. Still, if I asked you, just envision what this will become. You, you would never get there. Just, like, we're coming out of the spring season. If you've got an apple trees in your yard, we just saw those beautiful apple blossoms, white and pink and red. You would never envision that from that little seed. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says, 
so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. He goes on to say in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So he says there's, there's going to be some glorious differences. Now, I'm so glad this is true. I'm glad that my resurrected body is going to be different. To be clear, I'm thankful for this body. And we're going to talk about that later in the sermon too, right? I know that this body is God's gift to me. I'm thankful for it. But some days I get pretty sick of it. You know, I'm only 31 and it gets tired. And by 4 p.m. already I want to, want to go to bed some days. And my back gets sore before I've even done anything in the morning. And I don't think I could do a million years in this body. I don't know if I'll be able to do 50 more years in this body. But thankfully, the Bible says our resurrected bodies will be gloriously different. Paul says they will be imperishable, powerful, spiritual, immortal. Similar but gloriously different. Paul borrows language throughout this text and imagery from the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. Did you notice that? After the, after the sermon, feel free to go back and read through. And it, it feels like he's replaying Genesis 1 and 2 in his mind as he writes this. As he talks about all the animals of their kind and the sun and the moon and the stars. And he's using this creation language from Genesis 1 and 2. This beginning language as he describes the end. Which, when you think about it, makes an awful lot of sense. One commentator notes, The passage as a whole reflects considerable reflection on Genesis 1 and 2, presupposing the idea that in protology, that is, the study of creation's beginning, we find the keys to eschatology, that is, the study of the end. It's understood that in many ways, the last things will be like the first things, only even better. Doesn't it make sense? So if you want to understand the end, if you want to understand how this story ends, what God's final plan is for us, you'd be well served to take a look back at the beginning. What did this world look like before it was tainted by sin? And when we look back to the beginning, we see Adam and Eve in physical bodies, enjoying God's creation, dwelling with him. Now he says, it's going to be like that, but it's going to be better. Paul picks up this language and he says, just like we were born in Adam, just like we reflect our father Adam, like we're people of the dust. So, so now are we going to resemble our father Christ, who is our brother. But in this sense, he uses this language that we are in Christ, right? We inherit his, his newness. Uh, one commentator notes, Christ, the eschatological Adam, is the founder of a new and better humanity. I love that verse 49. Look back at verse 49 with me. Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we're going to be similar, but we're going to be gloriously different. We're going to be new. We're going to be better. It's going to be amazing. And it begs the next question, well, when will we receive our resurrected bodies? You've heard me say this before, but it seems to me that Christians are fuzzy on this particular aspect of our theology. And it comes out oftentimes in funerals. And I've said before, it's, I don't think it comes out of malice or wickedness or anything. But people seem to be confused when we think about our, our deceased loved ones who love the Lord, who are in Christ. 
And sometimes we talk about them as if they're doing cartwheels and they're already in their resurrected bodies. But the Bible is explicit in that they are not now in their resurrected bodies. The bodies of our deceased loved ones in Christ have been buried in the ground. And they're waiting for the final resurrection, as are we waiting for the final resurrection. The Bible tells us that they are in what theologians refer to as the intermediate state. Meaning their souls are right now around the the throne. The Apostle Paul talks about how it's good to be away from the body, but present with the Lord. So if your loved one was in Christ, they are right now, spiritually, in the presence of their Lord and Savior. And they're waiting for the day when they will be reunited with their resurrected bodies. So when is that day? When will it come? Well, look at verses 51 to 52. There the Apostle Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. So he says this trumpet is going to sound, at which point we'll be reunited with these resurrected bodies. You say, well, when is this trumpet? Like, what's he alluding to? Well, he fleshes that out further in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. There he writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So you put those together and he's saying, on that great day, Christ will return, that the clouds will be rolled back, the trumpet will sound, and, and at that moment, those who have gone on before us in Christ, they will raise up in their resurrected bodies. And then we too will receive our resurrected bodies. And then we will go together as the communion of saints, as the Holy Catholic Church, together with all of the other brothers and sisters in Christ who have come before us, we will go together to meet our Lord in the clouds. And then we will accompany him back to the earth for the final judgment. That's what he says here. And on that day, when we receive those resurrected bodies, that's, that's like the death blow to our enemy. Devil and, and death. First uh, Corinthians 15, 54 to 55 says, when the perishable, that's us, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, the defeat of sin and death is already guaranteed, right? That's a sure thing. You've heard us say that before. But when the bodies of the children of God are released from the grave and we receive our resurrected bodies, that victory that was anticipated will be consummated and the victory parade, if you will, will begin. So I want to just indulge our imaginations for a moment and just envision that. So it's good for us to look ahead with anticipation. God put these things in here because they're meant to be a comfort for us. We often, myself included, we often don't meditate on these things because we live a pretty comfortable life now. Uh, particularly young people. I'm thinking of our worship team who I could see in the room today. Young people full of vibrant health, life. This is feeling pretty good. But I know some of you listening right now, we've got some senior saints and you're aching and you're sore. And the Bible says it's good for us to look ahead to this promise, hope. And so let's, let's just think about what this will be like. It could be tomorrow. It could be a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. We don't know. But the Bible says a day is coming when the clouds will be rolled back. 
like a scroll. And it will be like a world-stopping event. The, the voice of Christ will ring out. This loud trumpet sound will ring out. And everyone will stop and look. All the kings, rulers, politicians, governors. From the, the meekest to the most powerful. Everyone will stop and behold the king of kings. And then those who have gone on before us will rise up in their glorious resurrected bodies. And we're going to see people like Daniel and David. But we're also going to see people like Henry Oderkirk and Bob Langman in their glorious resurrected bodies. And we would probably all stop and marvel at them, except the Bible says, then we too will receive our glorious resurrected bodies. And it'll be a sweet day. And sweet Emma Morrison is going to be strong and vibrant and all the aches will be gone. And we will then be what God intended for us to be. And we will ascend, just like the Bible says Christ ascended. We will then ascend and we will meet with Christ in the clouds. And we'll see him. And and as excited as I am to see what Henry's going to look like in his resurrected body, I'm more excited to see Christ. We'll see him. Revelation says in that moment he will be, he'll be seated on his war horse, right? The lion of Judah with a robe dipped in blood. We'll see the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who will still have the, the nail marks in his hands from where he redeemed us from our sin. We'll see in him perfect meekness and power combined we'll see in him perfect mercy and justice combined we'll see in him everything that we long for and love all combined in this perfect holy love we'll see Jesus we'll probably laugh for a minute about how all of the best preachers in the history of the world completely failed in preparing us to see and delight in Jesus and then with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, in our resurrected, glorious bodies, we will descend with him to the earth to finally set it right, to finally bring an end to sin and death and injustice, to make it what God intended for it to be before it was ruined and spoiled. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be incredible. And that is what we're alluding to when we recite this line in the creed. That's what we mean when we proclaim, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And as we conclude, I want to think through the, some of the implications of this doctrine. This eschatology, we've used that word a couple times now, let me explain it. Eschatology, eschatos is the end, and then ology is like the study of. So we're talking, the study of the end is more than just an academic exercise. Right? We don't just do this so that we can tickle our fancy and, oh, what would it be like if this and that? Oh, that's, that's interesting. No, this is... This is meant to change us. It's meant to change the way that we live, the way that we interact with one another. So how should this doctrine change us? What are the implications of the resurrection of the body? I've got three as we conclude. First of all, this doctrine should change the way that we talk about and treat our bodies. I mentioned off the top that this, this line was originally preached and proclaimed to a culture that despised their bodies, a culture that thought lowly of the physical realm, wanted to escape from it, saw it as a cage they were trapped in. Well, I would suggest that our own culture is headed back towards that mindset at a rapid pace. And I would argue that we have an incredible opportunity to present a radical alternative to the narrative that's being pumped out all around us. Christian, your body was given to you by God, and he didn't make a mistake. 
Now, unfortunately, there's no part of creation that is not currently tainted by sin. And that holds true for your body. It gets fat and flabby when you don't exercise. That's true. Sometimes, through no fault of your own, it gets weak and frail. It develops tumors and cancer and awful things. All of that is true. And yet, your body is is, is not yet what it will be in eternity. And yet, in spite of all its deficiencies, your body is not something that you should despise. It is God's gift to you. It's an eternal gift. And because you are in Christ... Galatians 4, 6 says, and because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit dwells in these bodies with us. God has made your body his temple. If God himself is willing to reside in your body and to call it his temple, then you ought to think twice about the way that you talk about that temple. Listen, just by way of application, parents, you know this, but let me just say, our, our kids are going to grow up in a world that is very different than the world that we grew up in. Now, they're going to face some similar temptations that we face, some similar challenges, right? Magazines with unrealistic ideals of what we ought to look like, those existed in our day, and they continue in this day. That's true, right? And music videos and movies and, and this cultural idea of what we ought to look like, that's, that remains the same. But then you add to that this terrible prevalence now of pornography and and the wicked vile things that are happening in these videos that kids are seeing these days and it's shaping the way they think about their bodies you add to that this very strong transgender movement that is essentially proclaiming the same message this idea that you can be truly happy if you can alter this physical body if you can change it and make it look a certain way then you will find fulfillment and happiness Listen, those ideas are are pervading the culture that our kids are growing up in. This idea that your body is just like a cage of meat and you just need to make that look just right so that your soul can find happiness. That's the water that our kids are swimming in. And it presents a mental health bomb that is eventually going to blow. Meaning what? Well, this is a, a, a multifaceted, complex issue. We can't unpack all that today. But I would suggest that this doctrine gives us a good place to start. So here's a start. Parents, church, let's be a people who talk differently about our bodies. Let's let's speak truth into our kids and into our culture where there's just this nonstop flow of error and nonsense. Truths like this. Your body is good. Your body is a temple of the living God. Your body is not a mistake. Your body is God's gift to you. Your body is not something to be escaped out of. Your body is not something to be ashamed of. And yes, your body is not yet what it forever will be. That's true. And sometimes we feel the brokenness of these bodies in really painful ways. But one day God is going to glorify your body. And in that glorified body, you're going to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth with God and and all of his people forever. So let's think about these bodies differently and talk about these bodies differently. I'm talking about little things like let's not talk about, let's let's not despise them with the way that we speak. 
so I'm, maybe I'm talking now to the kind of the younger professionals who say, oh, I'm so fat, or oh, I'm so, I'm so this, or my body's so that. Let's not, let's not let our kids hear us talk that way. Let's, let's put that away, right? For, and maybe for you senior saints who your bodies are starting to break down and, and they're sore all the time. Let's not talk about our bodies in a despising way. In the midst of the brokenness, let's remember that God's got a plan to set this right. And this body, even though it's not yet what it should be, this body is part of God's eternal plan for my life. So I'm going to talk about it differently than the rest of the world. Let's just, let's recapture some of that. A good biblical theology of the body. I mean, I'm convinced that in the days to come, that's going to be more and more important. Second, this doctrine, rightly understood, should inform the way that we witness with our bodies. Now, Christian funerals have historically been centered around the burial of the deceased. And this wasn't by accident. That whole practice was designed to proclaim a message, to proclaim this message of 1 Corinthians 15. Christians planted the body into the ground like a seed as a way of proclaiming that God's plan for the body was not yet complete. Right? That God still had a future for this body. Now, before I go any further, I want to say something really clearly, and I, I weighed whether or not I'd even include this point because I don't want to, to hurt anyone or offend anyone. Let me say it clearly. This doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that cremation is inherently wrong or evil. Whether your loved one was buried or cremated or lost at sea, if they're in Christ, then they will be raised in their resurrected body on that final day. That is true, okay? So hear that loud and clear. Then you say, well, if it doesn't affect them, then why would you say this at all? Well, I would say that reclaiming this witness actually affects us. Symbols instruct, and the imagery of the burial, of the burial is a powerful teaching tool. Right? It teaches us, it teaches our kids, it teaches our neighbors. And the lesson of the burial is the lesson of 1 Corinthians 15. When we bury the bodies of our loved ones, we are preaching. And we should preach that sermon. And we should preach it loud and clear. I was struck this past Friday as I had the honor and the privilege of being a part of, of our brother Bob's funeral. And it was because of the way things are, we had to have three services. So I was able to lead one service with nine other people. And to stand there next to the tomb with this hole in the ground. And to be able to, to look out at his loved ones who are grieving and to remind them that we're we're putting our brother into the ground right now and we're grieving as we should, right? Because he was a gift to us and we're going to miss that gift. But the Bible says that even as we put this body into the ground and we cover him with dirt, it's just like we're planting a seed in the ground. And we're doing this in faith because we know that that seed is going to sprout and it's going to grow and something glorious and new is going to rise up from this plot. The grave's not going to hold our brother Bob down. That's what the Bible says. So we're putting him here and we know that from here he shall come. When the trumpet sounds in his glorious resurrected body, he's going to come up from the ground and it's going to be sweet and awesome and wonderful. And that's why we're doing this today. And that's a sermon that as Christians we need to preach to ourselves and to one another we need to let these bodies proclaim the message that God made them to proclaim. The ceremony teaches. The symbolism matters. This, uh, there's this great quote. I've read it once before from Athanasius. It's so good, though. It's worth reading again. So let me. He says, When you see children playing with a lion, don't you know that the lion must be either 
dead or completely powerless. In the same way, when you see Christ believers playing with death and despising it, there can be no doubt that death has been destroyed by Christ and that its corruption has been dissolved and brought to an end. Saying the, the way that we think about death, talk about death, the way that we practice our funerals, the whole ceremony, it, it, it says something to the world. And the world is horrified of this lion, right? They see the teeth and the claws. They think that death is the end. They think that there's no hope after death. And when they see Christians coming to this lion and poking it, grieving, but grieving with hope, says that, that preaches something. I, um, I remember at my grandmother's funeral, it was about four years ago, I believe, I have, I have these, I had three uncles, I have two now. One of them passed away. But these two uncles, they're burly, strong, manly men. That's probably surprising to you. Yeah, I don't know, I didn't get any of that. But these strong, quiet type guys, they were at this funeral. And, um, and it was a packed house. Hundreds and hundreds of people at this funeral. My, my grandmother was a wonderful, godly woman. Came to the end of the ceremony. And they were going to come forward as pallbearers. And so it's just a sad moment, right? Everybody's we're upset, crying. And then in the stillness of the room, dead quiet, my quiet, burly uncle gets up, and in this room he, he sings, there ain't no grave, there ain't no grave that's gonna hold this body down. And goosebumps, and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable, but then my other uncle stands up next to him, he says, there ain't no grave, there ain't no grave that's gonna hold this body down. And the other pallbearers get up and they sing with them and they walk forward and in this quiet room, these six pallbearers, big burly men, just sing this beautiful spiritual song, this message of hope. We're taking this casket. We've got this lifeless body, but the grave's not going to hold this down. There's no grave that can hold this body down because this body belongs to a child of the king, right? This daughter, she's going to come up from the grave. And a wonderful sermon was preached that day, but I don't remember a lick of it. But I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. They, they, they poked the lion, right? Their teeth are gone. The teeth are gone. We're sad. This death is our enemy, but our enemy's been defeated. And so they picked up that body and they planted it in the ground and they put some dirt over it and they said, we know we're going to see her again. We're going to see her again in this body. We need to recapture that, Christians. And then as we close, and I, uh, I've erased the entire point I had here. I'll keep the heading. It should empower and embolden us in our weakness. It should empower and embolden us in our weakness. Just on a Pastoral note, I know that a lot of us in this congregation are struggling physically. And uh, it's tricky for me to speak to that because of course, I'm, and I'm a 31-year-old man and my body feels okay. Uh, but I know what it is to pray over the phone with some of our senior saints who have just aching, throbbing pain all day long. The doctor prescribes medicine to take away the pain. They take the medicine, but the medicine makes them sleep all day. So they feel like they're losing their life to sleep. So they don't take the medicine, and then the pain robs them of their day. And I, I can't even begin to imagine how discouraging that must be. Now, I've talked to you young moms with these newborns, and you're not sleeping, and you feel like you're just a shell of what you once were. There's no energy left in your body. You feel like you don't have the strength to do any of the things that you want to do. I know we have people in our congregation with post-concussion syndrome, who feel like 
you, there was a life that you had and you feel like that life has been taken from you and you can't seem to reclaim it. You're just a shell of what you were. And I know that there are people in our congregation with a litany of physical ailments that you must just be so frustrated and discouraged. Well, this text speaks to you today and I want to just conclude here. Remember, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't oblivious to the pain that we experience. He wasn't oblivious to the frailty in these bodies. Elsewhere, he told them, he says, I've been shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. They left me in prison. Paul, Paul understands what it is to have an aching, sore body that can't accomplish any of the things he wants to. He knows. And yet here, he points them to the hope of the resurrection. He reminds them that, you know, this seed is going in the ground, perishable, weak. But it's going to come up powerful, imperishable, immortal. And in light of all of that, in light of that, that theological hope that's tucked away in here, Paul writes, therefore, this is verse 58, look with me. This is where he concludes this doctrine, right? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Stop, steadfast. When your body is weak and it, it feels like a shell of what it should be, be steadfast, right? Keep pressing forward. Maybe you're not as steadfast as you used to be. Maybe you feel like you're stead slow now, right? You just feel like you're laboring through life. You used to be able to run, and now you feel like all you can do is crawl for the Lord. Just, well, then crawl for him, right? Do what you can. You continue to put one step forward. Be steadfast. You know how the story ends. Press forward. Immovable, he says. Be immovable. There is an enemy who is trying to sideline you and he's trying to turn you into a grumbler and he's trying to convince you that God is not good and he's trying to get your eyes off of the mission and one of the tools that he uses is that he hits your weak, frail body. And if you don't think he uses that tool, read the book of Job. Right, remember that? The the devil said, oh yeah, well of course Job's worshiping you. I haven't done anything to his body. So then he went and he gave Job these awful sores and Job was in the dirt just scraping and he was sick and frail and felt awful. And yet, Job continued to keep his eyes fixed on the Lord. There is an enemy who wants to see if he can take your eyes off of the Lord. And for seasons, you endure pain and hardship and suffering. God's Lord over all of that. God's got a beautiful plan that's going to end in in glory for you. And in the meantime, from Paul, someone who's experienced all kinds of physical suffering, he says, "Be, be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We, uh, I just talked about our brother Bob, and I'll, maybe I'll share this memory with you and then pray for us as we close. Bob would be the first to tell you, over this last year, his physical body was more of a hindrance than a help. And I remember these prayer meetings. Truth be told, there were times where I thought, why are we asking Bob to come to these prayer meetings? It was every last ounce of strength that he had to get down the aisle to the front of the sanctuary to pray. And he was, I'm not, no exaggeration, he was, he was winded, he was tired, he sits down in his seat and that was everything that he could do just to get to that seat. And yet, he got there. He wanted to be there. And when he opened his mouth to pray, oh, I bet the gates of hell shook, right? We all filled up with faith. And that's, that was his contribution, in those final days when his body was frail, 
I'm sure it's not the same as his contribution as a younger man, but he just, he pressed forward. He was immovable. He was steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord. And he brought himself to the altar and he prayed for you, church. And there was power. And it was glorious. And as I prepared this sermon, I couldn't stop thinking about Bob. It's especially, you know, you see God's timing all over it. Just a good example for us. And he pressed forward. Why? Because he knew that this, he knows how this ends. Right, if he didn't know how this ends, Bob probably would have stayed at home, sat comfy in a chair, watched his favorite, favorite shows, you know, preserved his energy. But Bob says, no, I've, the energy that I have, I know what I'm going to use it for. I'm going to use it for what eternally matters. I'm thankful for the example that he set. But you don't live that way unless you believe these things. And so church, do you believe this? Do you believe, is it more than up here? Do you believe this in here? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body? Change the way you live. Let me pray for us now. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. And uh, we're so thankful for your kindness towards us. Lord, you are so kind. And Lord, I say that in the midst of, after having acknowledged that, God, we have bodies that break down and we're sore and we're frail and this world is broken. And yet, wow, you are so good to us. And you've shown your goodness in that you have redeemed us, even though we are sinners, even though it's our sin, Lord, that introduced the curse that makes these bodies so frail and sick, even though we're reaping what we have sowed into the world, you redeemed us from it. You sent your son and he bore the curse in himself. He bore the frailty, the weakness. It was nailed to the cross. And through Christ, we have resurrection life. God, I pray that anyone listening today, if they don't have that, I pray that they would look to you and be saved. That they would turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus and experience that hope eternal that is ours. God, I pray that you would give endurance and perseverance to those who are struggling right now. Lord, I, I know that I don't want to minimize what they're experiencing. God, I pray that I didn't do that. But I also know that in the midst of what they're experiencing, there is a hope that can see them through. And I pray that you would just press it deep into their hearts today. God, I pray that you'd give them perseverance and steadfastness, that they would abound in the work of the Lord when they're tired, when they're weak, when they're in pain, when they're agonizing. Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, they would look to you and like Job before us, God, that they would, they would refuse to give an inch to the enemy. God, but they would worship you and they would look forward with anticipation to the hope that's ours. Those bodies that won't ache. That perfect presence that will be uninterrupted. That we'll forever enjoy. God, we, we long for that day. Lord, so encourage us. And encourage those who are grieving. Lord, I've, I mentioned our brother Bob. And I know that I think of Redeemer. And I think of all of the brothers and sisters who are listening right now. And there are many of us who are still grieving. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of our grief, you would just remind us of this glorious truth. Lord, that it would change the way we grieve. That, as the Apostle Paul said, that we would grieve, uh, but not as those who have no hope. So Lord, we ask all these things in faith, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?